Have you ever felt overlooked, forgotten, neglected? Have you ever felt like you're invisible, you're unwanted, unloved? And I'm not thinking back to when we were kids and we were in PE and we got shows last for dodgeball, Um, although for some of us that is the source of our adult anxiety was PE back in the day. Uh, But if we stick with our childhood, maybe it it is your childhood. Uh, Maybe you had a a parent who was absent, neglectful, abusive. Uh, Maybe in school you, you found yourself sitting alone at the cafeteria table day after day. Maybe you were the the athlete who tried out but didn't make the cut, and you were the only one who didn't make the cut. Maybe you're you're trying out for the lead role in the school play, and rather than being Cinderella, you ended up as tree number three. (laughs) Maybe at home you're sitting upstairs in your room all by yourself, and you can hear your family downstairs having a great time without you. Or go into adulthood. Maybe you didn't get the promotion even though you thought it was a guaranteed position. Or you sacrificed time, energy, and money on that community initiative, but somebody else received the recognition even though they sacrificed less. Or maybe you're watching the carefully curated social media lives of your friends, and you're wondering if they ever struggle with anything like you do. Is it just me? Or some of you there at times as well. Or, or how about this question? Have you ever, ever arrived at the point where you wonder if even God has forgotten about you? Uh, we have, in my own world, a few different situations that are happening with friends and coworkers and uh, students. One of my coworkers, uh, his 35-year-old daughter has been diagnosed with cancer. We don't know yet if it's terminal or not, but uh, she has uh, young children at home who may not have their mom for their developmental years. I have a a student that I'm working with every now and again when I can get in contact with him who's homeless. He's currently sleeping in a utility closet that's uninsulated this winter. You know, we just gained a a new employee at Youth for Christ. Uh, She's a coach at a Peoria school, has been involved in Youth for Christ for some time, and has been at a site that didn't have a campus life leader, like what Jenny and Caitlin and I do here in Metamora, and has been praying for that young leader to rise up and take over this position, but she and her husband have been faithful in this school, working with the students, and just recently had a a student who had graduated, one of her former athletes, who came home from college and took his own life. And it compelled her, motivated her in this moment to go, I'm tired of waiting. I need to be this person. I I hear that now, God. I need to be that person. I'm walking beside people who are are struggling to find jobs, even though everywhere we hear is everybody is hiring, and yet application after application after application goes in with no phone call coming back. What do we do in moments like these? I can imagine in this room, there's, there's probably people who are wondering if there's going to be dinner on the Christmas table, much less presents under the tree. You know, it's easy in moments like these to think that God has abandoned us, and that God is looking the other way. It's easy in moments like these to, to think that we've done something to offend God, 
or he's withdrawn his blessing from our lives. After all, if, if God really loved me, wouldn't he do something about this suffering? Wouldn't he do something about this sense of isolation I feel, of being forgotten and unloved? You see, here's a, a fatal flaw that I think we have as human beings. We often think that God's love for us is fickle. It's like Santa, who has a, a nice list and a naughty list, right? We better make sure we stay on the nice list, on God's good side, by doing good things and thinking the right things and saying the right words. And if we're not, then we suddenly go on his naughty list. And we think that God loves us when, when our lives are going well. Obviously, God loves us then, but when our lives are, are struggling, we assume he's withdrawn his hand of blessing from our lives. He has no more love for us. I remember several years ago when I turned 40, I went through a midlife crisis that I didn't anticipate, didn't really think. There was a lot going on. It was about an eight to 12 month experience for me. But one of the things that, that shook me was I went to my financial advisor. He was a good friend of mine and we just looked at our long-term retirement and he said, Chris, you're going to run out of money at 72. And I got really mad at God, really mad at God. Because I, I followed his call on my life into ministry. I mean, we just make tons of money working for churches and nonprofits. I don't know if you know that, but I got really mad at God because I'm like, God, I did my part. I said, yes, you called me into this. Why aren't you doing your part? Of course, a friend of mine told me that he just hadn't told me, God had told me that I was going to live to 72. That's a whole other conversation with God. That maybe he's taking care of me till the end of the, the day. But sometimes we think that God's love is fickle. And this understanding of God has been referred to by one author as a, a transactional relationship with God. If God does this for me, then I'll do this for him. If I do this, then surely God's going to do that for me. But it's a skewed understanding of God's love for us. And, and perhaps we need to better understand God's love. I'm reading a book right now with a group of men on Wednesday morning. Uh, it's this book called Gentle and Lowly. I believe we have a, a picture of the cover uh, up here for you. Uh, Gentle and Lowly, it's uh, by a pastor from northern Illinois uh, called Dane Ortland. And uh, it is just stretching my understanding of Jesus in ways, I mean, I've been following Jesus for 30 plus years, but this book has introduced me to perspectives of Jesus I've never considered and the depth of his love for us. And, and Dane writes the whole book based on, on just a few verses in Matthew chapter 11, that will be very familiar to many of you, uh, where Jesus says these words, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am gentle and lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And some of us, we know those words. And yet, we still question God's love for us when times are difficult, when God seems silent, when it seems like he's turned the other way. I want to read from the second chapter, just a section here that Dane writes. He says, what we see Jesus claim with his words in Matthew eleven twenty nine, what I just read, we see him prove with his actions time and again in all four Gospels. What he is, he does. He cannot act any other way. His life proves his heart. When the leper says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus immediately stretches out his hand and touches him with the words, I will be clean. 
And the leper was asking about Jesus' deepest desire, and Jesus revealed his deepest desire by healing him. That's what Jesus wanted. Uh, When a group of men brings their paralyzed friend to Jesus, Jesus cannot even wait for them to ask him for what they want. Uh, Scripture tells us that when Jesus saw their faith, they hadn't said a word yet, when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Before they could open their mouths to ask for help, Jesus couldn't stop himself. Words of reassurance and calm tumbled out of him. Traveling from town to town, he saw the crowds and he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. So he teaches them and he heals their diseases. Simply seeing the helplessness of the throngs, pity ignites. This compassion comes in waves over and over again in Christ's ministry, driving him to heal the sick, to feed the hungry, to teach the crowds, to wipe away the tears of the bereaved. This compassion reflects the deepest heart of Jesus. Twice in the Gospels, we're told that Jesus broke down and wept, and in neither case is it sorrow for himself or his own pains. In both cases, it is sorrow over another. In one case, Jerusalem, and in the other, his deceased friend, Lazarus. What was his deepest anguish? The anguish of others. What drew his heart out to the point of tears? It was the tears of others. And then he says these words, and I've bracketed them and triple starred them, which my guys on Wednesday morning know we're going to talk about whatever Chris brackets and triple stars. So it says, time and again, Dane writes, it's the morally disgusting, the socially reviled, the inexcusable and undeserving. I would add in the forgotten, the overlooked, the abandoned, those who feel unloved. It is to these people who do not simply receive Christ's mercy, but to whom Christ most naturally gravitates. He is, by his enemy's testimony, the friend of sinners. This morning, we're continuing a a series that Jason started last week as he talked about the Song of Mary. And this morning, we're going to move on to the Song of Zechariah. And and I don't want to depress us as we start this morning with all that I've said, although I'm probably too late for that. But I have to set the stage for the song, because in this moment, we're going to learn about a couple who felt hopeless. We're going to learn about a nation that was under oppression. We're going to learn about a religion whose God had seemingly gone silent. So if you want to turn there, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1, and we'll be in just that chapter for most of the morning today. It'll be on the screens as well, or you can use the Version Bible app. But let me set the stage before I read some of that scripture. Zechariah and Elizabeth are our main characters. Um, they are, Zechariah is a priest uh, who serves in the temple. Elizabeth, his wife, is a descendant of priests. She's from the line of Aaron, who was the first priest. And, and so we see that these are a righteous, this is a righteous couple. And, and they're elderly, and they're childless. And in this culture, unfortunately, in an honor and shame culture, to, to be an elderly woman without children is shameful. They're in a hopeless situation. Well, one day, Zechariah goes to work in the temple, and every day in the temple, a priest is selected by, by Lot, which is just casting these, these stones, uh, kind of like dice, and um, he's chosen to go into the Holy of Holies to, to burn incense. And this was an, 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 an honorable invitation, probably something that a priest would only get to do once in their lifetime, if ever. And it's also terrifying, because you're entering into the presence of God. 
and you don't know what's going to happen. Well, that day Zechariah's name is drawn and he's invited into the Holy of Holies. And as he's in there, an angel appears to him. And and the angel's first words, as Jason shared with us last week, most of the time when angels appear in scripture, it's not this angelic moment that we all think of. It's terrifying because you don't know what's about to happen. And, And so the angel appears in the Holy of Holies and the first words he says to Zechariah is, don't be afraid, Zechariah, which I can appreciate. If you've ever sent your child to camp and they're gone for a week, in the middle of the week when you get a phone call from camp and you see that number pop up, your mind just races, right? What had happened to my kid? And I love it when Miracle Camp calls me and the first thing they say is, Morgan's fine, she's fine, nothing happened. I'm like, okay, good, great, what do you want to talk about? You put me at ease. And this is what we see the angel do with Zechariah. Zechariah, don't be afraid. Everything's okay. By the way, you're going to have a child. Zechariah's like, excuse me? Let's look at the text. Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 13. It says, The angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you'll name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Uh, What you have to understand in this moment is that God is breaking 400 years of silence. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is silent for 400 years. All throughout the Old Testament, we see that God is speaking through prophets and priests and and circumstances, and God himself is speaking. And then we have this 400-year moment of silence. Think about that in the context of our own nation. Our nation is not 400 years old. So here we have a a people group whose God, a religion whose God has been silent. And all of a sudden, an angel appears. And he says to Zechariah the priest, I'm not going to be quiet anymore. I'm I'm beginning something new in your lifetime. And in fact, your son is going to be part of it. Uh, He he echoes Malachi chapter 4, which is some of our last words we have in the Old Testament. And it says this in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Those are the very words that the angel just said to Zechariah about his son, John. And Zechariah the priest knows these words. He knows the texts. And so his mind is immediately racing. Who is this child going to be? What is God doing in this moment? What's happening for our nation? Remember, this is a hopeless situation for Israel as well. They felt abandoned, neglected, unloved, forgotten by God. They've been under Roman oppression, and they have this history of being oppressed. If you just hit the rewind button, you see Babylon and Persia and Assyria and Egypt. All of these nations have oppressed the nation of Israel for centuries. And they have all of these prophecies about the coming Messiah would set them free. And we know, fast forward the story, we know that Jesus wasn't the Messiah they expected. They wanted a military leader, a political leader, somebody who would set them free from Roman rule. And yet Jesus died at the hands of the Romans. That surely isn't what they were expecting. And yet, in the midst of this oppression, God has stayed silent for 400 years. Have you ever had a moment like that? 
where you've prayed for something over and over and over. You've poured out your heart to God time and time again. And and yet it seems like your prayers are just hitting the ceiling and bouncing right back down to you. What do you do in moments like these? Well, let's see how Zechariah responds. Pick up in verse 18. How can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel. For I'm an old man and my my wife is well along in years. Fair question, right? I mean, let's just be honest. In this moment, if I'm Zechariah, I'm like, okay, I feel like we're past childbearing years. I'm kind of old. Like, I don't know how this is going to work. And, and, and there's, the angel's response is interesting. Zechariah must have asked the question in some sense of disbelief because the angel answers him. He says, listen, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Zechariah in this moment is turned mute because of his unbelief. He's been in there longer than most priests are for this responsibility. And so the crowd is becoming a little restless outside. They're wondering what has happened to him. Has God struck him dead? And finally, Zechariah comes out and and, and they ask him what happened and he can't speak. He's mute. And the crowd is amazed. And Zechariah and Elizabeth go home and move forward a little bit in the text. Nine months later, uh, they give birth. We're going to pick this up in verse 57. So Luke 1, 57. It says, now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she had a son. Then her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy, and they rejoiced with her. When they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. That's tradition. But his mother responded, no, he will be called John. They said to her, none of your relatives has that name. So they motioned his father to find out what he wanted him to be called. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they were all amazed. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. I wonder what you would say, what I would say, if after nine months of forced silence, I was finally able to speak. I'm an extrovert. I can't go a few minutes without speaking. Silence kills me. I generally wake up well before Karen and the family and She comes downstairs after a couple hours of me sitting in the the dark with the Christmas tree lights on, sipping coffee and reading, and I see her, and I'm just like, Karen, hey, Karen, hey, Karen. She says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Coffee first, maybe two cups, then you have permission to speak. What would you say? You've been forced silent. All of this has happened. You've had a child in your, your elderly years. Zechariah sings out a prophecy. Listen to the words of an elderly couple without a child. Put yourselves in their shoes. You've been shamed your whole life in your community because you couldn't have a child. Listen to these words as a nation under oppression from a foreign government. Listen to these words as a people group, a religion, who had not heard from their God For over 400 years. We're going to pick up in verse 67. Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel. Really, Zechariah? 
That's the first thing you say? You've been forced mute for nine months. You've had a child in your your elderly years. Your nation is still under Roman rule. Uh, God is finally speaking for the first time in 400 years. And the first thing you say is, blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel. I don't know that that's what I would say. But it's what he says. Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. And he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Listen to these words. Remember, you're under Roman rule. Salvation from our enemies and from the hands of those who hate us. That's an incredible promise. He goes on, he says, he's dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. He's given us the privilege since we've been rescued from the hands of our enemies to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. And then he turns. He's speaking first about the nation of Israel, the promise of the Messiah and the prophecies. and all Time has come, it's all gonna be fulfilled. Then he turns and he, he looks at the newborn child in his wife's arms, in his wife's arms. And he says these words, and you child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, a childless elderly couple, an oppressed nation, a religion whose God hasn't spoken in 400 years, overlooked, Forgotten, neglected, seemingly unloved, Zechariah says, because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This prophecy, this song by Zechariah is often referred to as the Benedictus comes from the Latin word benediso, which means I speak well of. It's those first words that Zechariah said when he, his mouth was unloosed. In the midst of a hopeless situation, after months of forced silence, he finally speaks, and the first thing he says is, I speak well of the Lord, the God of Israel. You know, one author said that the Benedictus was no doubt formed in the heart of Zechariah during the long months of enforced muteness, when he was dumb and not able to speak. After nine months of silence, it came streaming out like the molten metal when issue is given to it. I read this week that in in some monastic traditions, the monks wake up in the morning after a night of forced silence of sleeping, and the first thing they say is, I speak well of the Lord, the God of Israel. What if that was how we woke up every morning? Regardless of the situation you were facing. Regardless of whether you felt like your prayers were being heard or God had abandoned you or maybe God is blessing you like crazy, but no matter what situations happen in your life, what if the first words you said when you wake up in the morning is, I speak well of the Lord, the God of Israel? What would that do to your hearts and your mind? You see, we see Zechariah speak about hope and salvation in this song. It's reminiscent of Isaiah 9-2, which is a verse we often hear around Christmas. Says the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. See, Zechariah is prophesying about and praising God for two things. First, for salvation through the coming Messiah. 
And then secondly, for his newborn son, who's going to be the prophet, who will prepare the way for the Messiah. This is Zechariah's Lion King moment, right? Simba has finally been born, and, and Zechariah and Elizabeth present him. I'm not going to even try and sing that song. It's, just, it's, it's not going to work. But these, these themes of hope and salvation, of promise, of, of following through, God following through on what he told the nation he was going to do, and this is, this is Zechariah understanding that even in the midst of hopeless situations, when it seems like God has forgotten you, when it seems like God has looked the other way, when it seems like God has withdrawn his love from you, Zechariah would say to you that God is still present. That God is still good. Despite the hardships. Despite the pain. Despite the suffering. God is still at work in your life. See, I think of three core truths to come out of this. First is that God's timing is not our timing. We just looked at Zechariah and Elizabeth for that, right? They were well beyond childbearing years, and yet God shows up and fulfills a promise to them. Sometimes we, we put God on a time constraint that he's like, I don't work on that time constraint. I'm, I'm working, but I'm not going to do it in the time that you think it's going to happen, and we have to trust that God's timing is, is better than our timing. Also, that God's ways are, are not our ways. You know, I think about uh, how often we see in Scripture that God uses foreign nations uh, to make an impact on the nation of Israel. And I, I wrestle through that. I'm like, why would you use an evil nation, such as Egypt or Babylon or Syria or whatever other nations, uh, to do harm to your people? And then yet God says, I'm the potter, you are the clay. Thirdly, that God's love for us never wavers. Even in the midst of silence, God is still at work. In this book, Dane Ortland writes about the perseverance of Christ, the love of Christ. And if you've been around Christianity long, you've heard about the perseverance of the saints to endure faithfulness through difficult times. It's what we're talking about today. But Dane has a twist on it, and he says, you need to understand the perseverance of Jesus that no matter what is happening in your life, regardless of your sin, regardless of your doubts, regardless of your struggles, Jesus' love for you never changes. Some of us need to hear that today. Because we're holding on to the idea that God's love is fickle, like Santa Claus. We think that all too often God is somehow shocked or surprised by our sin. We think he recoils at the thought of us when he considers our sin. It's like, Dane says, it's like a, a young child who reaches out to timidly touch a slug and then recoils back like, oh, I didn't expect you to be that gross. We somehow think that that's how God looks at us in our sinfulness. And, and yet the truth is that our sin causes Jesus to rush towards us, to embrace us. Think of sin as a disease, as a sickness, if one of my kids is sick and all they have is a cold, I'm like, suck it up, buttercup, take some medicine, go to school, right? Like, I love my child, but there's not a lot of sympathy and empathy in the moment. Just, you know, you'll be fine. Get through it. But if I take my kid to the doctor and my doctor tells me that they have cancer, my reaction is very different. My love overflows onto my kid in this moment. In, in a magnitude to, to equal or, surm, or surpass that of the, the sickness and the disease. And, and that's how Jesus looks at us. 
And yet we think that because we're diagnosed with cancer, Jesus doesn't love us. And it's the exact opposite. Jesus rushes towards us because he has the cure for our disease. Our sin, which we can never fully understand, will never compel Jesus to run from us. It will only compel him to run towards us. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, because of you we are being put to death all day long. We're being counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, Paul writes, in all of these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are you here today and you're in a hopeless situation? Do you feel like God has forgotten you? Do you feel like you're being overlooked? That you're invisible? That you're neglected? And that you're unloved, rest assured that God has not abandoned you. He's at work in ways that you may never know and never understand. Keep your eyes on Jesus and keep running the race. In fact, this morning, if you're here and you're in one of those situations, we're going to have prayer people on the side that we would love to have you connect with. Because the worst thing you can do is try and do this on your own. You need to invite other people into this. And, and then the prayer team, the pastors here, your life group leader, these are people that you need to lean on when you're going through difficult times. And so lean on us this week. Go out to the foyer and there's a Christmas tree out there with some prayer tags and you can write down for yourself and, and your situation and the staff this week is going to pray over every name and every situation that's written on that tree. Are you here today and you're not in a hopeless situation? Praise God. I love that. But know that someday you will. We're not immune from any suffering in this world because we're in a relationship with Jesus. This world is going to be challenging. Hold on to these words that you are not abandoned. You are not overlooked. And maybe you need to go to these people that are going through difficult times. You need to take a step towards them to help carry their burden through this difficult season. Maybe you need to go to the tree out here and write the name of a loved one, whether they're in our church or not in our church, it doesn't matter, and the staff will pray for that person who's going through a difficult time. Remember this Christmas that we worship a God, that we worship a Savior, we worship Jesus, who said these words about himself, and they're words that should encourage our hearts in difficult times. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus says in the face of even death, what seemingly is the most hopeless of all situations, Jesus says, I am the resurrection. Even death cannot separate me from you. Jesus says. Let's pray. Father God, we worship you this morning. We admit that our understanding of your love for us is so minuscule. 
If we, if we claim to know you fully, to understand you fully, then God is no longer you that we're talking about. It's some made-up fictional character that we think we understand. Father, forgive us for these moments when we make you in our image rather than allowing you to be God. Father, forgive us for those moments when we put limitations on your love. That we think that somehow, some way, that we've done something so horrible, so far beyond reproach that you would not love us. Father, overwhelm us today with your spirit to remind us of the depth of your love for us. That neither height nor depth, that not even death could separate us from your love. Fathers, we worship you this morning. We worship the God who is love, who is the source of all love. Father, forgive us when we think less of you than that. We praise the name of Jesus. Amen.